You're listening to The Advocast, presented and produced by the Advocates for Human Rights. January is National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month, and in this episode, Advocate staff, including Madeline Lohman, Megan Walsh, and Lindsay Grising, discuss the problem of human trafficking, as well as the work the advocates do to address it. This episode also features Megan's interview with volunteer attorneys from Fagri Drinker, in which they discuss the work they've done and how it's affected them. Hi, my name's Madeline Lohman. I'm a senior researcher here at the Advocates for Human Rights. And for National Human Trafficking Prevention Month, I'm here to talk a little bit about what human trafficking is and the role we can play in preventing it in our communities. I think when a lot of people think about human trafficking, they think of it as something that happens in other countries or maybe to the sort of invisible people that might be in our communities, undocumented immigrants, the very poor. But in fact, human trafficking can happen to almost anyone. We find it in cities, in suburbs, in rural areas. Victims can be men or women, uh, very young, adults or the old, they can be persons with disabilities, they can be people without disabilities, they can be immigrants from another country, but they can also be U.S. citizens. I go out and train all around Minnesota, communities and organizations and state agencies on what human trafficking is, and everywhere I go, I hear stories of experiences that people or their friends or family or coworkers have had. In one case, I was giving a presentation and a man shared with us that he had a niece who lived in their small town. That niece wanted to go out and experience different parts of the country, travel around. So she joined a company that did door-to-door sales because she thought this would be a chance to both make money and see some of the country. But it turned out to be a nightmare. The company confiscated her phone. They held onto her money. And eventually the only way she was able to quit that job was to crawl out of the bathroom window in her hotel room in Chicago because the company had representatives sleeping in the hotel rooms with all of the workers so that they wouldn't leave. That is human trafficking and it can happen to anyone. One of the challenges of finding human trafficking, identifying it and helping people who are stuck in human trafficking situations is that People often don't know that their experiences are human trafficking experiences. It takes someone from the outside to recognize that what's happening to them isn't a bad job or a bad relationship, but in fact, someone coercing them into doing something and not letting them leave or stop. This is true in sex trafficking cases where people may believe that they're doing something for a boyfriend that they love or to earn some money and pay back a debt to a pimp. It also happens in labor trafficking where people may think this is just a bad boss or sure, he he stole my money and my paycheck bounced, but I'll get my money next month. So it's really important for people in the community to know what human trafficking is. That's how we find cases. The Advocates has had clients 
uh, in a number of different trafficking situations, and almost all of them were discovered because someone else encountered the situation and recognized that it was trafficking. One of our very first ones was farm workers who had come here from the Dominican Republic. They worked on temporary agricultural visas on a farm doing vegetable harvesting. And these workers were not being paid appropriately. There's certain rules on how much you need to pay workers on temporary visas. You have to cover their travel. You have to cover their housing. And the farmer was not doing any of those things. He was doing it on the books and then he and the labor brokers who had set up the arrangement were forcing the workers to give them kickbacks and pay all of it back. This was uncovered because the Federal Department of Labor was doing an investigation into the workplace conditions of this farm. They were going out and seeing that the workers didn't have water, that they weren't uh, being given the right protective gear in the fields. When they talked to the workers after visiting a couple times, the workers disclosed that they weren't being paid correctly. And the Federal Department of Labor were the ones who recognized that the conditions went beyond just violations of the visa program and actually constituted human trafficking. In other cases, it's community members who identify the human trafficking. We had a case of a crew of roofers working in the construction industry and the boss of this crew was a human trafficker it turned out he some some of the workers were injured on the job and he refused to get them medical attention when they tried to get medical attention he forced them to lie about how they had been injured and eventually they were picked up by immigration enforcement he used that uh, to intimidate the other workers. He got one of them out on bond and then forced him to work for free because he said he had paid for his bond and supposedly for an immigration attorney. These workers started talking to a labor organizing organization and this workers' rights group was trying to help them get paid. But as they talked to them more and more and realized how afraid they were of their supervisor, they recognized that it was more than just a workplace rights violation. At the same time, the advocates was talking to the person in immigration detention and realized that they were in immigration detention because they had been through this very bad work experience. And the two organizations, the advocates and the labor organization, collaborated and determined that what was happening was trafficking. So that was an example of how community organizations are the ones to identify it. And then the advocates has not had this experience, but there's a quite famous case out of Iowa where a group of men with developmental disabilities were recruited to work at a turkey processing plant. They were paid very minimum amounts of money, the company controlled their bank accounts and confiscated all of their social security payments. They were isolated and punished when they didn't do exactly what the company wanted. And this was discovered because one of their family members, the niece of one of these men, was talking to her uncle and realized that even though he'd worked for 30 years, he had no money in his bank account. And she was shocked. How, how had, did he have no money if he lived in a rural farm in Iowa and had been working for 30 years. And at her insistence, the investigation uncovered this trafficking situation. So outsiders are key 
to identifying human trafficking and helping people get safety, get justice, and rebuild their lives. So what do we need to know to recognize human trafficking? We need to know what it is. When we think about human trafficking, there are really three parts to the definition. The first is that the trafficker is exerting some kind of control over a person. That control is being used to get some kind of labor, work, or services. And finally, the person doing that work or services believes that they cannot leave or stop the work. So those three parts are the key. The trafficker is doing something that something can be threats, it can be actual physical violence, physical restraint, it can be blackmail, it can be using debt to control a person, it can be using personal relationships to control a person. And they're doing that control in order to get labor worker services. So it's not just abuse, it's abuse with the purpose of getting some kind of labor or services. Those labor or services can be sexual, they can be commercial sex in the case of sex trafficking, but they can also be uh, legal employment in industries like hospitality or construction. They can be informal work. So we've had cases of housekeepers or nannies who weren't necessarily in a formal employment relationship, but who performed services around the house. And it can also be illegal work. So you can be trafficked and forced to carry drugs or sell drugs. You can be forced to participate in identity theft. It can be things that aren't criminal, but are in a gray area like panhandling. All of those can be places where trafficking occurs. We do see that though anyone can be trafficked and it can happen anywhere, that there are certain risk factors that make people more vulnerable. These generally are risk factors that either make it hard for the person to know how they should be treated at work, they're very young, or they don't have a lot of experience in the US workplace, or it can be a factor that makes it hard for them to trust someone in a position of authority. They have a criminal record. They've been involved in the juvenile justice system. They are an undocumented immigrant. Or it can be something that uh, makes them very desperate for employment. They're very poor, or they desperately need housing, or they desperately need love and support of a family. So we see why trafficking happens, is to get the labor or services out of people. And we can also see who's at risk. And we know how important it is for community members to be able to recognize this. So how can you recognize it? The things that you wanna look for are the signs of control that the trafficker might be exercising or signs that the situation is really wrong, that something's very wrong in the situation you can't really explain why. So an example of that, if someone is enduring really bad working conditions, they're never getting paid, they're underpaid, their workplace is really unsafe, they have to live at work. Those kinds of signs are an indication that something's wrong. What's compelling them to stay in that position? Sometimes it's because life is hard for them for other reasons, but sometimes it's because someone has trapped them there. Another could be indicators that the trafficker has the kind of control over their lives that is that main part of the definition 
They can't talk to who they want to. They are restricted in where they can go. The trafficker always speaks for them in conversations. They don't get to answer their own questions. It can also be signs that they're in debt to someone and that they feel that they have to do something because of their debt. It can also be indicators of physical abuse, malnutrition, exposure to the elements, workplace accidents that have been untreated and uncared for. Those are all potential indicators that someone is experiencing human trafficking. Sex trafficking occurs when a third party profits from or facilitates the commercial sexual exploitation of others. Sexual exploitation itself is a form of abuse. It arises out of a power differential between the perpetrator and the victim. Commercial sexual exploitation occurs when someone exchanges sexual activities for anything of value, for promise of something of value, uh, most often money, food, shelter, Often these are basic needs. Sex trafficking affects U.S. citizens as well as foreign nationals. It does not require transporting a person from a different country or crossing any border. It happens in communities throughout the state, including in rural, urban, and suburban areas. And it involves exploitation of individuals of all races, genders, and sexual orientation. Over the last 15 years, Minnesota has increasingly stepped up its work to address and prevent sex trafficking. Prostitution, or the selling of sex, has been a crime for many years. Minnesota first made sex trafficking a crime in 2005. It defines sex trafficking as receiving, recruiting, enticing, harboring, providing, or obtaining by any means an individual to aid in the prostitution of the individual. It also includes anyone who profits knowingly from one of these actions. Minnesota's definition of sex trafficking differs from the federal definition of sex trafficking, which requires prosecutors to show that the traffickers use force, fraud, or coercion to recruit or maintain an adult in sex trafficking. The federal requirement which requires a prosecutor to show that the trafficker used force, fraud, or coercion, can be difficult to prove. More importantly, it directs attention away from the actions of the trafficker. Of course, that is a person charged with the crime. Focusing on whether the person selling sex was coerced or forced invites an inquiry into the motives or state of mind of the trafficked person. The federal statute addressing sex trafficking of minors does not require proving force, fraud, or coercion on the assumption that minors cannot consent to engage in prostitution. The advocate's work in preventing sex trafficking flows from the fundamental principle that sex trafficking violates several basic human rights, including the right to safety, self-determination, health, dignity, and the right to be free from slavery and free from discrimination. In 2008, the advocates prepared a needs assessment on sex trafficking in Minnesota at the request of the State of Minnesota Human Trafficking Task Force. It released its findings and recommendations in a report to help the state establish a plan to prevent sex trafficking. At the time, prostitution cases were prosecuted far more often than sex trafficking cases, and even minors who were victims of sex trafficking were often treated as criminals rather than as victims. The Advocates' Report brought to light the lived experience of victims in Minnesota, including how they were treated by the criminal justice system, law enforcement, and child protective services, as well as analyzing the resources available to help victims of sex trafficking and the gaps where support services were not available. The Advocates' 2008 report led to significant changes in the state. Following the report, Minnesota enacted a plan to support sexually exploited youth. In 2011, the legislature enacted a law that ultimately decriminalized youth who were victims of sex trafficking or commercial sexual exploitation. This law, called Safe Harbor, ensures that minors who are victims of sex trafficking are not prosecuted for selling sex. An important effect of the Safe Harbor law is that it laid the groundwork for the state to treat minor victims of sex trafficking and sexual exploitation as victims rather than criminals. At the same time, Minnesota significantly increased state-funded services for minors who are sex trafficking victims. 
the state enacted a system of support services called No Wrong Door in 2014. It now provides over $15 million biannually to support minor victims. In 2016, the legislature expanded the age range of victims who could receive support services funded by Safe Harbor, raising the age up to 25. Overall, Safe Harbor and No Wrong Door have led to a sea change in the state's response to sex trafficking. Endeavors to treat victims of sexual exploitation with dignity, Minors who are victims of sex trafficking are directed to supportive services and shelter and housing that meet their needs. And it also recognizes their right to make their own choices. Safe Harbor was first enacted over 10 years ago, and Minnesota has operated the Wrong Door program for over six years. The Advocates for Human Rights has begun fact-finding to evaluate how Safe Harbor and No Wrong Door are currently working to meet the needs of sex trafficking victims and to analyze what more the state needs to do to prevent sex trafficking in Minnesota. One of our goals in this report is to center the experience and feedback of victims and survivors of sex trafficking and allow victim input to lead the state's next steps. The Advocates has been joined in this work by the law firm of Fagri, which has committed hundreds of hours to fact-finding, interviewing stakeholders across the state, and drafting a full report. We expect to release our final findings, recommendations, and the full report later in 2022. This is Megan Walsh with the Advocates for Human Rights. I'm a staff attorney in the Women's Program, and I'm here today with members of Bagry Drinker, um, our pro bono partner in working on the anti-sex trafficking report that we expect to be released later here in 2022, who are going to be discussing the work that they have been doing on an anti-sex trafficking evaluation and report, um, which has been going on for a few years. So um, I'm going to let you guys introduce yourselves. Thanks, Megan. Hi, this is Carrie Bundy. I'm a partner at Fagri Drinker and I'm one of the leads of this initiative that we've been fortunate enough to partner with the advocates on. Hey, Megan, I'm Kate Middleton. I'm also a partner at Fagri Drinker um, and I have been working on this project for at least two or three years now. And I'm Veronica Mason. I'm an associate at Fagri Drinker and I started in the early stages of this project, so about three years ago. Great. Well, it has been wonderful to work with all of you, and um, the project preceded me, so I really appreciate that this has been going on for years at this point. Um, your commitment to this work is truly extraordinary, and I know that there are a lot of people who look at an issue like sex trafficking and think, this issue is so big. How can someone like me do anything that would actually make a difference um, to this huge problem that's facing us as a society, as a country, as a state? So I was hoping you could start out by talking about how you created this project and how you got involved. So fate, we approached this with the advocates and having three phases. Um, the first phase was the research phase, looking at both legal and other publications other policy initiatives to see what had changed since 2008. We then went and created a team for phase two, which was outreach and interviewing with key stakeholders throughout the Minnesota community, talking to dozens of people from community organizations, law enforcement, local and state government, healthcare, and other uh, key constituencies. And then the final stage, which is where we are right now and hopefully wrapping up very soon is in really taking that legal research and, and, and the interviews and putting it all together, identifying themes and drafting a report and recommendations that we'll be able to share with the community. What, what has been so valuable about the interviews is 
you know, as one can imagine on any topic that is, um, as broad and as, um, sensitive and as important as sex trafficking, you have, you know, competing views depending on the broad stakeholder, um, group, you know, law enforcement, government, community stakeholders, um, and also even sometimes conflicting views within the same, um, stakeholder group. And so part of the process for the interviews was not only just gathering information, but also synthesizing the information and trying to understand, um, really understand the different stakeholder viewpoints. Um, and then using that to, to inform, um, what recommendations we might make going forward with how to, um, you know, better improve not only the way that we try to address uh, sex trafficking from a legal standpoint, but also from uh, a community and resource standpoint. I was hoping that you would be willing to share some of the things that you learned through this process and this pro bono participation that surprised you about sex trafficking in Minnesota. I'll, I'll gladly start. Um, Megan, you, you mentioned that um, sex trafficking can just seem like such a big problem to tackle. And I think um, what this project has really revealed is it, it, it is, and it's multifaceted. Um, and there are, you know, any number of causes and any number of avenues that it, someone can find themselves in a position of being trafficked. But in looking at all those different avenues, you kind of start to see patterns and you start to see, um, you know, potential solutions, um, not just legal, but also, you know, from the community level up. And so I think that was one of the most um, impactful things for me was you know, it does seem like at times an impossible um, issue to tackle, but when you start to kind of dissect uh, the issue and you start to look, okay, how are most people being trafficked? It, it might not be um, how most people think, you know, it's not oftentimes these massive ses sex trafficking rings, right? It's um, happening within the community. It's happening within a household. It's happening within a family. And so if you can start to look at that and see, what are some common themes in those situations? Lack of support, lack of basic needs. Um, you can start to try and, and see ways to fix at least parts of um, the system where it's broken down. So I think that's been um, really significant and, and also encouraging. Yeah, I think one of the things that surprised me the most was how often these networks of resources have kind of built up around individuals who saw a problem. Maybe they saw something that they weren't expecting in their own community. And so they got interested in what they can do to solve that problem. And they reached out to different nonprofits in the area. They reached out to law enforcement. They reached out to healthcare resources. And they started building up a solution, a, a way to help people that they thought needed help. And it's just takes one inspired individual to start collecting those resources and making them available and connecting people. And that would blossom into a whole network. And I thought that was amazing and, and not really what I was expecting to see. I thought it would be a more systemic, traditional way of forming a network, but um, it's really just takes one inspired individual. 
And I, I think that's one of the challenges going forward too, is, is the coordination among stakeholders and um, the resources that they provide. You know, funding can come from so many different areas. It can be from grants. It can be from uh, either government or private. It can be, um, you know, an individual fundraiser, right, to start a community organization. And um, what is most challenging is how do we connect all of those different resources to provide a network for victims, right? Because right now um, they can be kind of disparate and disconnected and, um, you know, funding is a huge thing. How, how can we make sure that these different resources are funded? But it's also how do we ensure that there's cooperation and collaboration among these, these various stakeholders who provide critical resources to victims? If there was one thing that you would like listeners of this podcast to understand about sex trafficking, what would it be? I think I'll start with that. I, th I think one of the things I learned that I didn't appreciate as much as I do now um, after interviewing some of the stakeholders is just the importance of a victim-centered approach. A lot of the community organizations talk about um, that you may have good intentions and you may want to fix something, but that isn't enough. And that you really have to focus on the needs uh, and the concerns of the victims and make sure you're approaching the de delivery of services in that way, because that is how you show compassion and are able to do it in a non-judgmental way. And that's something that, that's very difficult and takes a lot of training. And seeing and talking to some of the stakeholders who do that and live that was was truly inspiring um, and really and really made me proud um, to see that there are Minnesotans out there that are really tackling and handling this on the front lines in a very compassionate way. So I, I will I will build on two things. First, to build on Carrie's, I do think it's super important to understand that there has to be there's the, not this one size fits all approach to sex trafficking. And that is true both as to um, prosecuting sex trafficking and also to assisting the victims. And, um, you know, that is challenging because a lot of times when you do have these programs funded by grants or private funding, whatever it might be, there are usually parameters, um, you know, pursuant to which these funds are delivered. And so it's, I think it's a challenge for both those funding the programs and also those running the programs um, to do the best they can to build in flexibility um, to their their program and to the delivery of resources, which is by no means an easy task. Um, and it's it's not a solution that I can you know readily define um, across the board. It really does depend on the resource, but it's super critical. Um, to meeting a victim's needs to do that. And so I think that's one thing. The other thing is that um, sex, trafficking, sex trafficking is still very pervasive in Minnesota. There was a lot of publicity about sex trafficking um, in Minneapolis in particular around the Super Bowl. Um, and since then, you know, focus and at least publicity on the topic has somewhat waned. But, you know, Minneapolis and the Twin Cities still remains one of the um, top locations for child sex trafficking in particular, and across, you know, more broadly into the rural areas and into our native communities, it has historically been and remains a big issue. So um, I'd like people to understand that it hasn't just disappeared. Um, it hasn't gotten miraculously better. Um, you know, people 
in the communities and, um, you know, our, our legislators are, are working, to, you know, hard to continue to address sex trafficking, but it's going to take, I think, more investment from um, Minnesotans at, at, a, at a community level as well um, to continue, you know, the progress that we've made so far. Yeah, and echoing Kate's response, uh, I'd really like for people to understand that this does exist, sex trafficking does exist in Minnesota. Uh, everyone I talk to agrees sex trafficking is awful and has a profound impact, uh, but they think of it as something that happens in major cities or that involves being taken from one country to another country uh, and not something that's happening in their Minnesota community. Whereas a person can actually be trafficked without ever having left Minnesota, um, the definition is much more broad than I think a lot of people actually think of. And I, I think it's important to educate people so that they can see that in their community and help with the solutions. And one of the um, one of the things that I think Veronica and her team found was that uh, the FOSTA-SESTA um, legislation that specifically looks at um, ways of fighting sex traffickers online have not been really well utilized in um, prosecuting sex trafficking. And so that's something, you know, that if we can bring to light in our, um, you know, in the report in partnership with the advocates, um, that might help uh, increase its use, perhaps, um, or at least um, make people more aware that it's a, it's a tool that they have at, uh, to use in pursuing sex traffickers. We are so thankful to Figure Drinker for being such a committed pro bono partner to the Advocates for Human Rights, for doing this work and doing this work so well on anti-sex trafficking, and a special thank you to Carrie Bundy, Kate Middleton, and Veronica Mason for being here to talk about our current anti-sex trafficking report, which will be released later in 2022. Foreign nationals are particularly vulnerable to victimization and trafficking, um, both in recruitment to come to the U.S. as well as once they are in the U.S. Traffickers often exploit fears of deportation to help control victims. Um, victims can also be trafficked into the U.S., but it is also very common um, that they can be trafficked once they are here. Both of those would qualify for special protections under the law. And the U.S. does provide some important protections for foreign national victims of trafficking, as well as um, U.S. citizens that are victims of trafficking. The major piece of legislation that controls this is the Trafficking Victims Protection Act and its reauthorizations. Um, it's important to note that the Trafficking Victims Protection Act has been consistently reauthorized by unanimous votes in Congress. And so this is an important piece of legislation that we've all agreed uh, to uphold. Um, the TVPRA includes immigration options for people. It provides a special visa that I'll talk about in a little bit. It also provides an option for the U.S. government to issue temporary work authorization and kind of an interim status for people who are victims of trafficking. Um, it allows victims of trafficking to access some public benefits while their case is being investigated, and then also offers some um, case management and social protections for people who are victims. 
So in terms of immigration status, um, people who are victims of trafficking are eligible to apply for what's called a T visa. Um, they might also be eligible to apply for a U visa, which is a broad visa available for victims of a number of enumerated crimes, which includes trafficking. But the T visa is specific for trafficking victims only. And this includes both people who are victims of sex trafficking as well as labor trafficking. So it's a, technically a non-immigrant visa, um, but it does allow the person to apply for permanent residence uh, after three years of being in uh, non-immigrant TEV status. There are 5,000 of these available annually, and we've never actually um, reached this number. So that means that once the visa is approved, there's no backlog where a person has to wait until a visa is available for them. Um, this is different than a U visa, which currently has, I think, about a 10-year uh, wait for visas to be available. Um, so the T visa is um, a pretty great option. It also currently takes about a year and a half to three years, according to the U.S. government's case processing timeline. So that's just how long it will take for the government to process the paperwork for that application. And that's all done by Department of Homeland Security's U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, Vermont Service Center. Once a T visa is approved, the person is eligible to work in the United States. It also allows them to access a range of federally funded services. They can um, petition for family members to come and uh, join them. Um, and then, like I said, they can apply for permanent residence after three years. So in order to qualify for a T visa, the person must show that they're a victim of a severe form of human trafficking as defined by federal law. Again, this includes both labor and sex trafficking. They must show that they are physically present in the U.S. on account of that trafficking. And as I noted, this does not mean that the person must have been trafficked into the U.S. to qualify. Um, it can mean that the person came to the U.S., for example, on a student visa or without documentation, and then once they were here, fell victim to an employer or um, a trafficker who forced them to work or um, undertake commercial sex acts. They must show that they are complying with all reasonable requests from law enforcement to uh, investigate the trafficking. So. When the TVPRA was passed, it both recognized the need to protect trafficking victims as well as prevent and punish trafficking. And so the idea being that lots of non-citizen trafficking victims are fearful of participating um, in investigations because they are worried that they might be deported or have immigration consequences. The TVPRA created this T-Visa both so that victims could be protected, but then also so that law enforcement could say, could get people to participate in investigations without being fearful that they would be penalized um, through their immigration status. Uh, so the person needs to show that they are helping law enforcement investigate the trafficking. There is an exception to that if the person is under 18 when they are trafficked, as well as if they are unable to participate because of severe trauma from the trafficking. They also must show that they would suffer extreme hardship if they were removed to their home country. This could be based on their trafficker being there, loss of access to benefits or the justice system in the United States, etc. And then they also must show that they're admissible to the United States or that they've been granted a waiver of inadmissibility. 
And so the process for that is that the person then will submit their application to USCIS, which will then process the application and um, either grant or deny. And if they deny, it can be appealed. This is in concert with the person also then going through reporting to law enforcement and complying with any reasonable requests and having their potential, their case potentially prosecuted in a federal or state court. So in addition to having uh, some immigration status granted as a victim of trafficking in the interim, so in that one and a half to three years while we're waiting for a T visa to be approved, the federal government can also issue some interim immigration protections, which are called continued presence or deferred action. They're very similar, but uh, deferred action has a few less protections. Um, and benefits, whereas continued presence is um, a little bit more beneficial for victims. But both of them stop any immigration proceedings or deportation. So if the person is in removal proceedings and, and maybe facing deportation, then getting continued presence or deferred action would stop that. It also allows the person to work while they're waiting for their T visa to be approved and while they're going through helping law enforcement investigate and prosecute their trafficking case, and then also allows them to access some public benefits. Again, this is the idea that, based on evidence, of course, that um, trafficking victims are vulnerable to, to being re-trafficked or staying in a trafficking situation, both because they're fearful of their of maybe immigration consequences, but also financial vulnerabilities can certainly um, impact a, a victim's need to stay in a trafficking situation or maybe be re-trafficked. And so by providing continued presence or deferred action, the law really does uh, help victims get out of a trafficking situation by helping them access benefits and be able to work. The continued presence is only available or can only be applied to through federal agencies, but a, a local law enforcement agency can ask federal law enforcement to apply for that or to grant it if they have a victim. And the law is very clear through ICE's own guidance that continued presence should not be selective and should not be limited to, to certain folks. As long as the law enforcement agency believes that the person is a victim of trafficking, they should provide this quickly once they, the person is identified so that they can participate and be supported through the process. Outside of continued presence and deferred action, there's also benefits through the Office of Trafficking in Persons. This is called OTIP. These are benefits specifically for minors who have been victims of trafficking. And this is a bit broader than who's eligible for a T visa in that a victim who is a minor can access OTIP benefits even if they were trafficked outside of the U.S. So recall that a T visa has to have some connection to the U.S. Either the person has to have been trafficked into the U.S. or be, become a victim of trafficking in the United States, OTIP benefits are available for victims even if they were trafficked outside of the U.S. And, and those really do just provide important support and basic needs for people who are victims and who are minors. So these are really important aspects of our immigration law and our federal legislation around trafficking. 
um, and that they uphold our obligations under the Palermo Protocol, which both criminalizes trafficking and states an international agreement of supporting trafficking victims as well as stopping trafficking worldwide. In our work, we provide direct client services to victims who are trafficked and help them apply for T visas and go through the reporting to law enforcement and definitely have seen just what an impact the ability to apply for immigration status and get interim benefits it has on victims in the sense that they you know no longer have as much fear that they will be removed. Often employers or traffickers really use immigration status against a person. And so, you know, Knowing that that person can no longer be removed is life changing, I think, for for a lot of victims. And then just being able to access legitimate employment as well as benefits really helps people get back on their feet. Often we, you know, many of our victims have had everything taken from them by their traffickers. They've been forced to put up a lot of collateral for debts that they are then forced to work off in the United States or have been really betrayed by trusting someone, even a family member who's ended up trafficking them. And we see this in all walks of life and people from all over the world. We've had victims from Africa, Asia, Latin America. We've had young people, older folks, people who have worked in a variety of industries. Um, trafficking really kind of knows no bounds and um, there's no one specific type of victim. So it's it's really important that the Trafficking Victims Protection Act provides these important benefits to folks to, to help them in the process. In practice, though, there, there have certainly been challenges and the Advocates is working to try and help make accessing benefits and, and giving meaning to the TVPRA through a lot of our training and our work in the community. One of the big things that we saw or are seeing is just the lack of understanding of what specifically constitutes trafficking. Um, there's lots of misconceptions about people consenting to situations, such as folks who you know, took a job offer in the United States they were promised would be great, and then coming here and, and ending up being victims of trafficking and being abused by that person who recruited them. The belief that you know, that person agreed to the situation or that potentially the work situation is better than what they would have found in their home country. Both of those things or neither of those things um, allows the person to be trafficked. So you can never be never consent to being trafficked, even if you consented to to the work situation in the first place. And so really just understanding by law enforcement agents to be able to identify trafficking situations is, is so crucial to being able to fight trafficking. And that's why the Advocates does a lot of the work that we do on outreach and training with law enforcement agencies. And we've also seen a lack of political will to really give meaning to implementing the TVPRA despite a lot of political statements against trafficking, especially under anti-immigration immigrant administrations like we recently saw. We ran into many, many issues in, in getting our cases investigated and approved. Hopefully we're seeing that change with a lot better understanding of how immigration dynamics can play into victimizing folks and capacity as well. So even the law enforcement agencies that we work with who really do understand and want to help investigate and stop trafficking all report that they you know, lack 
a lot of resources and, and have to prioritize what they investigate and bring cases on. And so, you know, making sure that agencies have the, the resources and capacity to take these investigations on and, and really do a good job is, is also something that uh, is going to require a lot of work, I think. Some positive developments in the last year that we have seen include a new memo from the Department of Homeland Security on employment raids. We saw, we have seen a number of raids in the past where DHS is uh, aware that there are undocumented folks um, working in a place and they will raid that location, like a, a meatpacking plant, for example. And instead of really recognizing the immigration dynamics and potential for trafficking there and really screening for trafficking victims, often we see that folks are instead taken into immigration custody and prioritized for removal, which really goes against what the Trafficking Victims Protection Act provides. And so that new memo is exciting in that it recognizes that when conducting employment investigations, DHS really should be mindful of trafficking dynamics and, and taking a victim-centered approach. DHS also issued a new memo on victim-centered approaches to trafficking adjudications and its work on um, immigration issues that we are hopeful will provide a lot more understanding and approvals of bona fide T visa cases. We also see have seen new policies on enforcement priorities and um, policies for how to process cases in immigration court that should be should better allow trafficking victims to remain in the U.S. and participate in immigration proceedings as well as in investigations and prosecutions. And then a number of trainings for law enforcement, especially at the state level, Minnesota has been doing a great job of uh, really making trafficking a focus of its work. Thank you for listening to The Advocast. If you think you or someone you know may be a victim of human trafficking, you can contact the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-373-7888 or call our client line at 612-341-9845. If you're interested in learning more about The Advocates and what we do, visit us at theadvocatesforhumanrights.org. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and sharing the episode with your friends. It really helps us out. Once again, thanks for listening.